Father, indeed, there is nowhere else to go, for you alone have the words of life. If it had not been for your word, Father, we surely would have perished. And yet, Father, too often we can sing and say beautiful truths and deny them by our lives. And so we pray that as our worship continues in this gathering, that we would not turn away from the words of life. We would not think that they are unneeded in our lives. But rather, in humility, we would listen for your voice in the coming minutes. For as much as a man is preaching, Father, we ask that you would be speaking to us through your word. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things about you and the ways in which we should rightly respond. God, give us life in these coming moments. Give life to your word in our lives. Fill us with your spirit that we might hear and respond in ways that magnify your name in our midst. Father, if you do not meet us here in your word, then our time together has been a waste because we need you more than anything else. As much as you deserve our worship and our praise and the singing of our voices, Father, we need you and your presence, your grace and your mercy in our lives. And so meet us now, Father. Speak to us and help us to listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 100. Psalm 100. As you're turning there, consider or perhaps be reminded of what you may have been taught in school that many, many years ago, uh, after a series of victories during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln broke the precedent set by his immediate political forebears and began issuing several proclamations for days of national thanksgiving and praise. Why was that controversial? Because his proclamations specifically pointed to God, one even our Heavenly Father, as the source of our national thanksgiving and the object of our praise. That tradition has now continued and thanksgiving is a fixed part of our culture, though overshadowed by Halloween, which comes before, and Christmas, which comes after. Thanksgiving remains a national holiday, even among some with a little bit of nostalgia and sentimentality attached to it. And so perhaps even as stores decide to close and allow their employees to go and be with family, there is a little bit of thanksgiving and its spirit left in our culture. But we're not just part of our culture, we're part of the church, and so we should be asking ourselves, why, as Christians, do we, among all people, have the most reason to be thankful to God, our Heavenly Father? Well, this is why we're looking at Psalm 100. The superscription tells us that this is a psalm for giving thanks. Interestingly enough, it is the only psalm out of 150 with that label. Many of them talk about thanksgiving. But as one scholar says, it's as if the psalmist is saying, if you want to know how to thank God, let me show you the way in this psalm, Psalm 100. And this is part of the reason why Psalm 100 has been so prominent 
for so long. It's been a regular part of the worship of Jews and Christians for centuries. Even back in the Reformation in the 1500s, it was one of the first psalms whose words were put to English lyrics and sung regularly. And after that first hymn of Psalm 100 was put into use, it would be in every single hymnal published in the English language for the next 200 years. And so generation after generation after generation would be singing these songs. Now, you may not have ever sung that hymn before. You will at the end of the sermon, maybe for the first time. But most of us know the last verse simply as the doxology. And beyond that one verse being so, uh, so famous and one that we are familiar with, it helps summarize the point of Psalm 100. Why do we worship? Why do we give thanks? We praise and thank God for from Him all blessings flow. So this morning as we approach God's Word, we want to have the tanks of our gratitude topped off and overflowing with the fuel of God's person and worth so that we ourselves would be those that worship and thank God. So with all that in mind, let's look to Psalm 100 together this morning. Please stand as I read from God's Word. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Psalm 100 has a very simple design that betrays deep and essential truths. God is the ultimate source and object of our thankfulness. Therefore, we are commanded to fully, sincerely, and joyfully worship Him. Psalm 100, uh, or rather in Psalm 100, God is on full display, and we're not only pointed toward God, but we're told how to respond to God. And so, as we spend our remaining time together, that's what we want to think about. How should we respond to God aiming towards that spirit of thankfulness for which the psalm was written? Well, first of all, as we think about who God is, we ought to worship the Lord. We ought to worship the Lord. We see this in verses 1 and 2. The ESV retains the traditional reading, make a joyful noise to the Lord in verse 1. And as much as those of us who lack Vocal, musical ability, like the idea that we can at least make a noise as long as it's joyful, that's probably not the best translation. Other modern translations have something like shout for joy, and that's better because this word is often used for the shout that would go up in honor, in praise of the king as he has triumphed in battle. It was a natural response to victory. But notice, it is a commanded response. The psalmist orders us, make a joyful noise. And so that tells us something about joy itself, doesn't it? In this way, joy stands in contrast to happiness. Happiness is certainly part of joy, but joy is more than happiness because happiness is often the result of our circumstances. Happiness is often rooted in 
things and people and events. And insofar that those things and people and events are working for our circumstantial good or bad, our happiness rises or falls. But joy, true, lasting, satisfying joy is not centered on anything other than God Himself. If my hope is rooted in God, whose nature and character and purposes never change, then my joy can remain constant. This is why worship is commanded of all the earth in verse 1. Such is the glory of the Lord who provides and sustains joy in all things, that He deserves the worship of all peoples everywhere. Moreover, the psalmist goes on to tell us what that worship looks like. Two things are commanded here. This doesn't mean that that we're exhausting all of what worship is. But but in this psalm, two big things are commanded. Two ways in which we are to worship. First of all, we are to sing to God. We are to sing to God. We see at the end of verse 2. It's probably also implied in verse 4. Not surprisingly, singing has been part of the worship of God's people in both the Old and the New Covenants. Why? Because it is an appropriate way to express our praise and thanks to God. When we come into His presence together, we are to come with singing. At the same time, uh, perhaps we face a somewhat unique temptation in our day and age when it comes to music and singing as a church. Given the cultural realities in which we live, it can be very easy for us to begin thinking about music and singing in terms of entertainment. We subtly are tempted to think that the people on the platform on Sunday mornings who are playing instruments and are singing are doing that for us rather than with us. Now, I don't want to diminish God's gift of our music team, next Saturday they could all come down with horrendous flu and we could still show up and sing. No instruments, no people with microphones, no one on the platform and we would still be able to make a joyful noise into the Lord. It would just be just fine. Again, all that we have here is wonderful but when we think about the global church, it's also all preference. The style of music, the kind of instruments, Now, some of that's based on who's here and who can play, but all of it is preference. Singing is the responsibility of all God's people. It it is, again, should be the natural response to giving God the worship that He deserves. Now, with that in mind, what is your singing like on Sunday mornings? Not what is our singing like on Sunday mornings. What is your singing like on Sunday mornings? Sunday morning. Some of you set the example for us. Some of you show up and you sing well, not because your tone is necessarily great, but because it is evident that you are singing praise to the Lord. You are allowing the people around you to hear the words of worship come off your lips in singing. But others of you, as I sit in various places around the auditorium, are mumblers when it comes to singing. Some of you are murmurers when it comes to singing. Some of you might be worried about the sound of your voice, whether or not you're in key and are people going to think ill of you. Others of you may just not be into singing. And some of you are men. We probably are the worst offenders when it comes to lack of singing in corporate worship. And I don't really know why. I have a guess. 
that at least in our culture, it's probably because we think it's not manly to sing. I could be wrong about that, but if I'm not, let, 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 me, just, let me just push in a little bit here and remind you that the most prominent singing voice in the Bible is a male voice. Almost all of the singers we see in the Bible are men, at least the ones that are named. We see songs of Moses and songs of David. A warrior had blood-soaked hands and wasn't allowed to build the temple. And yet he has written dozens and dozens of songs to the Lord. You have the sons of Korah, you have every other psalmist. You even have Jesus who led his disciples in singing to him just before his death on the cross. And so beyond their example, we have this command and we have the motivation in this psalm to open our lips and sing. It doesn't matter what the culture thinks. It doesn't matter what people around us think. Give us some noise on Sunday morning because the Lord deserves it. If you want to see what that's like, I would suggest, and being encouraged in that, men, I would suggest sitting by at least two other fellas that I find encouraging to me and provoking me to sing louder, Greg Kreitzer and Reed Lucan. Sit next to them and you will be treated to someone, a man, men, fellas, who are not afraid to be heard on Sundays. All of us, if we are believers, sing in worship to your Savior. But then remember, worship is not just singing. Sometimes we talk that way. But worship is not just singing. And the psalmist reminds us of this. It says worship is also service. So, so we were to worship the Lord. How do we do that? We do that by singing to God and we also serve God. We serve God. That's what the, that's what the psalmist says in verse 2. In the Old Testament, these words service and worship can be used interchangeably with service being a kind of work. Not like this kind of a service, a worship service, but a kind of work that we do. The point is that every part of our lives can be offered as an act of worship to God. You remember, it's quoted very often, Romans 12, Paul says, But the mercies of God present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. What is the most rational thing to do because you've experienced God's mercy? Worship Him. And how do we do that? By offering our bodies implied every part of our lives is meant to be given over as an act of worship. And so this is why we sing songs like, Take My Life and Let It Be. If, if you haven't before, listen to the lyrics. It connects the movements of our hands and feet, the content of our lips and our voice, the purpose of our will and our heart, our mind, our wealth, and our love, all with worship. And so we sing, Take My Life. Not just my singing, not just my time at church. Take my life and let it be. Consecrated. Set apart, sanctified, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in endless praise. It doesn't just mean that the guy is going around singing while he does his work, right? It's not a Disney cartoon. No, the point is, everything that is done, from my thinking and my feeling and my speaking and my seeing and the labor of my hands is to be done in worship to the Lord. So serving on Sunday mornings and childcare and greeting or making meals for your family or giving your employer an honest day's work or striving to keep your thoughts pure in the midst of heavy temptation or caring for orphans and widows. All of it can be and should be done as worship to the Lord. Especially if we remember that we're not just serving those people, but we're serving God Himself. 
And so verse 2 says, I can do all things in the glory of God with gladness. I can work really hard for other people, and it can be joyful if I'm doing it as worship to the Lord. Well, this is the first step on the path to thankfulness, worshiping the Lord. In verse 3, then, we're told to know the Lord. Know the Lord. The command to know the Lord comes in verse 3, and this is really the pivot point of the psalm. Everything in verses 1 and 2 is flowing into verse 3, and everything in verses 4 and 5 is flowing out of verse 3. It's the central exhortation of the psalm. We are told to know the Lord, specifically that He is God. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. In in the context in which the psalm was written, you've got all of these ancient pagan deities, all of these idols everywhere, and Israel is reminded, "Don't, don't go after those things. It's only the Lord, the God of Israel, that is the real God. There is no divine pantheon. There is no cosmic boardroom where Yahweh rolls up and is just one among many, giving input over uh, his, little, his little nation of Israel. No, 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 no. The reason why all the earth is commanded to joyfully worship the Lord is because it's the Lord alone who is God. This stands in sharp contrast to the popular thinking of our day, as well as popular culture. Some of you have and continue to watch the ever-expanding Marvel Universe of movies and TV shows. And what's interesting is, and if you haven't, don't worry about it. You're, not, you're really not missing all that much. Um, it's just the, uh, the, the eight-year-old Johnny who read comic books dream come true for some of these things. But uh, what's interesting is that in the last year or two, we've been shown the Greek afterlife, the Norse afterlife, and the Egyptian afterlife, all laid alongside the implied Christian theology of Captain America who knows there's only one God and he doesn't dress like Thor. But in all those glimpses, none of it looks the same. And and they can't be the same because they all have different rules and different procedures and different things about what make you worthy to go to all these different places. And you say, well, come on, that's just a movie, right? Well, yeah, it is just a movie. And so in that sense, it doesn't really matter. And yet those movies are a reflection of our cultural beliefs. This weird, nonsensical approach to the afterlife comes right out of the the weird, nonsensical approach to the afterlife and spiritual things rooted deeply in our culture, where we hold up all kinds of religions that say very contradictory things. And yet somehow we say, well, it's all the same. No, it's not all the same. Just because we use the word God doesn't mean we define God the same. Just because we use salvation doesn't mean we define it the same. And, and these things actually cannot cohere. They say mutually exclusive things. God cannot be, Christian God triune, three in one, along with a pantheistic Hindu model that says there's millions of gods, or the Islamic, there is only one God, not a triune God. These things don't work. They don't fit together. But God sets the record straight. The Lord sets the record straight. In Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, he says, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. What is he saying there? Yeah, there's all kinds of talk about other deities, but, there, but there's nothing there. There's no reality behind them, just a wishful, deceiving fiction that is no better than a face carved into a block of wood. But the Lord is God the only God, the true God. And when we know that, then we need to be reminded of a couple of things about this 
true God. First of all, God created us. God created us. Here the focus shifts in verse 3. Know the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. The focus is no longer on the nations, but specifically on Israel as God's people. Israel has every reason to worship the Lord as God because they are His people. And how are they made His people? Now we can start in Genesis chapter 1 and we can read through all the way through Exodus and we can see historically how the, the people of Israel became God's people. We can see how God preserved a, a godly line of belief through, uh, through the, uh, the, the, the battle of the offspring of the, the seed of the woman and the seed of, of the devil coming out of, of Genesis 3, this godly line of humanity and this rebellious sinful line of humanity constantly at odds with one another, resetting to the flood, but then preserving people and humanity to keep going, calling one idolater, Abraham, out of his idolatry to worship him, the one true and living God, and making promises to him that if he would trust him, that he would bless him and bless all the nations through him. And how God kept that promise by creating the nation of Israel and Egypt, by redeeming them, and by moving them into the promised land. We can look at the historical facts, but sometimes the Bible says, let's think about the historic facts from a different perspective. We're not contradicting these things, but, but maybe let's, let's set what God did in different terms so that we can better understand the significance of it. And so we see this highlighted picture of God creating Israel in Ezekiel 16. And what he magnifies is his grace and his mercy and his love towards his people there. If you're not familiar with, with Ezekiel 16, I'll summarize part of it and then we'll, we'll read part of it. Ezekiel 16, God is talking to Israel and reminding them of how he found her, symbolically speaking. It's, it's symbolism to convey important theological truths. He said, I found you as a baby just having been born and yet cast off and thrown by the side of the road. He says she was laying in an open field, naked, covered in blood with the umbilical cord still attached. She was abandoned and there was no one there to take pity on her or show compassion to her. No one to pick her up and no one to care for her. So God says he showed compassion toward her. He called out to her, live, and she lived. God was gracious to her and it caused her to flourish. And yet, as Israel grew and matured and arrived at the age of adulthood, still no one wanted her. She was undesirable. No one took her as their bride. And so the Lord, in love and mercy and compassion, spread his wings over her and loved her. He made vows to her and entered into a covenant with her and made her his bride. And then here's what he says in the beginning of verse 11. God to Israel, I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect in the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. What loving kindness from God. What grace toward Israel. 
And yet, it is also the story of every single believer. Tonight, we're going to have a celebration of members who have participated in adoption and orphan care. And here's why we do it, in case you're wondering. God does it. He has set the example for us. He cares for the orphan. Even today, it doesn't matter about Israel because he does the same thing in the church. If you are here today and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were part of the church at one time, you were also a spiritual orphan. You were languishing in your sins, helpless before him, ready for his just condemnation with no one else to save you. And yet the Lord looked on you with compassionate eyes. He called you to himself. He cleansed you of your sins. He forgave you and made you a part of his people through his son, Jesus Christ. God creates his people not by making demands, but by showing them grace, by rescuing them like orphans out of their great need and bringing them to himself. God creates his people. More than that, God cares for his people. God cares for his people. We are his people, verse 3, and we are the sheep of his pasture. The image of God as a shepherd to his people is pervasive throughout the Bible. It's a picture of care and concern because sheep are pretty helpless. I often wonder if God just made sheep to be a living picture of his people. They can't find food on their own at least not well, they can't protect themselves from danger, they don't have claws, they don't have sharp teeth, right? They're just this big, vulnerable target. They need a shepherd who will lead them and guide them and protect them and provide for them. And of course, in the ancient world, sometimes a shepherd was just a job. He didn't care about the sheep. All he cared about was getting paid. But not so with God. We are His sheep. We belong to Him. The care that He provides is personal. Moreover, it's complete. There's a reason David can say in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, if the Lord is my shepherd, if He is the one that's caring for me and protecting me and guiding me, then I will lack no good thing in this life. I shall not experience want. Thus, we have all the more reason to praise the Lord as our God. If the nations are to worship the Lord as they've been instructed in verse 1, then this is how they will do it. They will come to know the Lord and the Lord alone as God. Through faith in Him, they will renounce their false gods. They will turn away from the carved images. They will turn away from the false thinking and come into the fellowship of His people, Israel. And there they will be cared for as precious sheep in the Lord's pasture. And again, today is no different. In the fullness of time, we see the Lord himself came into this world to create and care for his sheep as the perfect shepherd in the person of Jesus Christ. And though dead in our sins, rebellious in our hearts, and justly deserving of God's wrath, he loved us. And out of the fullness of the Father's love, Jesus came to be our Savior. He took upon himself God's judgment for our sins. And so when we see that, when we see the truthfulness of that, and we turn away from our idols and turn toward God, what we find is not a judge who's going to condemn, but a father who accepts us because we have been forgiven. He takes us, spiritual orphans, and makes us his own. And just as much as Jesus died for our forgiveness, he was also risen to be established as our king, as our shepherd forevermore. So he continually provides for our spiritual needs, protecting us from spiritual harm and ensuring that we enjoy spiritual life with God forever. 
How can we not entrust him with our lives? How can we not worship him? Not just together, but every moment with every labor, with every deed. Whether for the first time now, as a new believer who embraces Christ by faith, or one of a million moments of the life of faith, as a believer of many, many years, right here, right now, know and trust the Lord as your God today. We have been told to worship the Lord, to joyfully sing to Him and serve Him because He alone is God and worthy of our worship. Moreover, we've been told to know the Lord. We should seek after Him and remember how He has been gracious towards us, created and caring for His people. And in all of this then, we have been motivated to give thanks to the Lord. This is our, the third thing that we see in Psalm 100 from verses 4 and 5. Give thanks to the Lord. In verse 4, we return to this call to worship the Lord. Now we're told to enter His gates with thanksgiving and enter His courts with praise. In the original context, this imagery of gates and courts was part of the, the temple complex in Israel. To enter His gates and His courts is an echo of verse 2. We are going into His presence because God had made His presence known at that temple. And so the, the people of God are gathering together to worship there. And if we've been here and at all paying attention, as Pastor Greg has been leading us through the book of Hebrews, we know there's no longer any need for any kind of physical temple or sanctuary, for the Lord Jesus is our temple. And because He is the true temple, and we are united to Him, He is gathering us together to be a spiritual temple for God. So there is a sense in which whenever we pray, whenever we give praise to God, we are coming together and we are entering God's presence through the finished work of Christ. And notice how we are to come with thanksgiving in our hearts. We are to be thankful because the Lord is an endless fount of grace and mercy in our lives. We have every reason to continue to be thankful to Him. You say, well, what specifically has He given me? Everything. Everything. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that you have has come from the good and gracious and powerful hand of God. To try and count the Lord's blessings would be to sit at the bottom of Niagara Falls and try to, to keep track of every single drop of water that went over the edge. It's impossible. It's not surprising then that Paul can say things like, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. 1 Thessalonians 5. Or in the context of gathering for worship, sing and make melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5. Thankfulness should be the easy, obvious overflow of a heart that knows the Lord is God and is captivated by His endless goodness to us. It leads us to blessing Him, that is to speaking well of Him as we worship Him and as we live for Him in this world. Now remember, what's the point of our passage? It's a psalm for giving thanks. This is why, across the entirety of the psalm, we've been exhorted to focus on the Lord. Again and again and again, our minds have been shifted and turned and pushed back to the Lord Himself. Everything in this psalm is God-centered. 
Think about it. We've been told to shout to Him, to serve Him, to come into His presence, to know Him, to enter His gates, to give thanks to Him, to bless His name. But now you may be thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I want to worship Him. I want to know God. I want to trust Him. But you don't understand what my life has been like. You don't understand what I've gone through. You don't understand the pain and the suffering and the anxiety that I face. How can I possibly do that? And the psalmist has not left you without an answer. All of those imperatives are telling you to go to God and give Him what He deserves. And in this last verse, we're told why we can obey those commands. Why we can worship and give thanks. He gives us three reasons. First, God is good. God is good. This is not a statement, or rather this is a statement about God's character. He is good. In Him is no spot or blemish or imperfection. Everything about God is good. Even His ways are good. So if you're in the midst of great difficulty, it's not because God is doing something wrong in your life. I love how H.P. Charles Jr. lays it out. Everything God does is good. His plans are good. His purpose is good. His providence is good. His provision is good. His protection is good. And His pardon is good. God is good all the time. So what does that mean? When we think about the context of Romans 8, it means even on our worst days, God is good in doing something good for us. Paul is someone who started his life pursuing a lie of religious zealousness that he thought was the truth, but it turned out was not. And not only was that shocking enough as the risen Christ appeared to him and told him he was wrong, but then as God turned his life around and now made him not just a disciple, but an apostle of Christ, preaching and spreading the very message that he sought to put to death, he told him, you will suffer much for my name. I don't know that I want that calling, to be honest. I don't know that I want to be told, John, you're going to suffer much. And yet Paul was told that, and he continued, perhaps with even more zealousness than before as a Pharisee, to be one who advances the name and the glory of Christ in all things. And he did indeed suffer greatly. And some of the things that he went through, there's a lot of us that would, that would throw in the towel and be done. And yet he comes to a passage like Romans 8 and he says, I, I consider those sufferings nothing compared to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. So, so here is one who has endured great suffering. And what does he say? He says, God is working together all things for the good of his people. To those that know him and are called according to his purpose. Paul says, God is good even on our worst days. The second reason he gives us is this. God is good and God is loving. God is loving. Verse 5 says, his steadfast love endures forever. The phrase steadfast love is sometimes translated loving kindness. 
His faithful love, everlasting mercy, or unfailing love. It's a word that means God's covenant love. The fact that He has set His special affection upon His people. And it kind of reminds me of my grandmother. She died, I think, when uh, my oldest was probably around six or seven, maybe eight. Uh, she knew my, my three oldest kids. I think uh, my third, David, was maybe like two or three when she passed away. But um, we lived in a different state at the time. We lived in Michigan. They lived in southern Ohio here in town. And uh, we didn't see them that often, maybe two or three times a year. But when we did come the fullness of a grandmother's love was unleashed. But when you're little, when you're two or three, and there is someone you don't know who is older, and like my grandmother is trying to talk in a squeaky voice like we talk to babies, but now age has distorted that like something from a horror show. <laughs> Come here, give me kisses. The kids are kind of like, who is this and what is she going to do, Right? But she was relentless. So we would, put, we would put Joshua and we would put Rebecca and we would put David in her lap and she would hug them and kiss them and say sweet things and want to read books. And the whole time they're squirming and they're struggling and looking at me like, why are you putting me here? But she just would not let go. Such was her love that she just wanted to make up for all those weeks and months and years that she was not with them 24-7. She loved them. And God's covenant love is kind of like that. Not that God is an oblivious grandmother, but His love is of the kind that simply will not let go. If He has set His affection on you, then that affection will remain forever. He's not going to get bored with you. He's not going to forget you. He's not going to get so frustrated with you because you keep being disobedient in the same sin over and over and over again. You know, he is going to continue to love you. Like a seal, his love binds us to himself. His love never fails, in part because God himself is faithful. This is the final reason we have to worship with thankfulness. God is faithful. God is faithful. Verse 5 says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. If you're like me, you've had friends who've left you. You've had employers who've cared more about cash than you, their employee. You've seen news stories about spouses who decide to go back on their marriage vows and promises in a variety of circumstances. We live in a culture of infidelity and fickleness. It doesn't just happen in real life. It's now become the source of, of entertainment and jokiness and even expectations for how things will go in this life. We have some that intentionally throw off marriage plans and, and don't do it because they assume the person is not ultimately going to be faithful to them. It's quite the striking contrast to God and how He is portrayed in the Scriptures, one whose faithfulness endures to all generations. Think about Numbers 23. Here's a false prophet, a gun for hire, but, but, but the Spirit has put 
truth into his mouth and he says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? There's never a need to doubt God's faithfulness. He will always do what he says. He will never go back on his word. His promises will never fail. God is faithful. It is an essential part of his being and character. What does that mean for us? It means that we continue to live secure in his love. In Malachi 3, God says, I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Now think about the implication. If he did change, then we would be consumed. Because we are not faithful, we are not loving, and we are not good at our core. We need God to help, us, help make us those things. And I know that if I was God looking at my life, there'd be a lot of times I would say, I'm done with you. I've been patient with you, I've been kind to you, I've been gracious to you, and you keep messing up. And so I'm done. Goodbye, you're on your own, and then I would be consumed. But, but God's not me, thankfully. He's not like any one of us. He is the Lord, and He is faithful. He does not change. Some of you can bear witness to that today. Some of you perhaps were like the wayward son of Jesus' parable. You at one time found yourself off in a far country eating the slop of sin's consequences and now find yourself returned to God, living in His ways. You only have God to thank. It was His goodness. It was His love. It was His faithfulness that simply wouldn't let go and drew you back to Himself. This is the path to thankfulness. It's been laid down by the character of God and is seen in the promises of God. But what if we're still tempted to doubt? What if we're still tempted to think, yeah, but is it really true? Is God really that good? Is He really that loving? Is He really that faithful? God knew our doubts. He knew our temptations and therefore, he put all of these things on full display through the person of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God's goodness had a voice. Speaking truth and kind words to the Lord's people, drawing them to himself. In Christ, God's love was displayed on a face that would give a smile and a tender look to those that were on the outside that the Pharisees had no time for, but that Jesus would welcome when they repented and put faith in Him. God's faithfulness was seen in Christ and His crucified body. One who came into this world for the express purpose of living a perfect life that He might die as a perfect sacrifice and be raised as a perfect King for His people. And though Jesus had every human reason to turn away from that, the pain, the abandonment, the sadness, the sorrow, the devil coming to him and tempting him over and over again, just don't do this. Even on the eve before it happened, Jesus and his humanity struggling, saying, God, if there was any other way, I am, I am open to suggestions. Nevertheless, 
Your will be done. Jesus was faithful to God's plan. And in that unwavering commitment, Jesus became the perfect Savior and the perfect shepherd that He is today. And so this morning, as we understand who God is from Psalm 100, we ought to worship Him singing and serving with all of our might. We might know Him and continue to deepen in our knowledge of Him, knowing how He has created us and how He cares for us. And then we ought to give thanks always and in all circumstances for God is good, God is loving, and God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we love you because of all that you have done for us through Christ. It is hard for us to comprehend all of the kindness that you have shown us in him. But we pray, Father, through Psalm 100, we have been reminded and maybe even been given a deeper glimpse into the realities of just how good and loving and faithful you are. And may those realities about your character, about how you have worked so graciously in our lives, help us to worship you with thankfulness in our hearts. We pray, Father, that you would keep us from pride and ingratitude, but instead help us to remember that all that we have has come from you. And therefore, we ought to praise and thank and bless your name always. As we continue to pray silently, Lord, help us to see very specific ways in which our lives betray these realities and how we might better worship and thank you. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.